Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the uh, sublime achievements of popular culture in the history of the world. You recognized it immediately. And what is so um, interesting about the theme from A Summer Place, as performed by Percy Faith and his orchestra, is that it goes with a movie that is actually very interesting relevant, you might say, to the secret of life. And this particular podcast, number 154, entitled Kramer, is kind of um, the, you might call it uh, My Sharona Unbound. That is to say, the podcast some time back entitled My Sharona that seemed to distill some um, experiences and thoughts since the year 2007 has been even, uh, you might uh, say, uh, exercised uh, in a more felt and uh, experienced manner since that podcast. And this is really an attempt to sort of put together the... um, the learnings of the nature of human aspiration and what the heck are we actually doing in life and what is this all about? Now, let me say what Summer Place is about, then let me say where I'm coming from, and then let me say uh, where we're going to go. And then we'll conclude with another musical instance of this particular elaboration on the nature of Kramer. Now, The movie itself uh, was released in 1960 and is almost notorious because of a performance by Constance Ford as a um, diabolical mother and a very touching performance by Sandra Dee and also by Troy Donahue, let alone Richard Egan and Dorothy McGuire as their parents. I think Arthur Kennedy is also in it. And it is a very uh, powerful uh, uh, movie about the transmission of uh, Kramer and the ability uh, of a life to kind of um, uh, move in a better direction or a less Kramered direction. And what happens in the movie, to put it in a trice, is that uh, a middle-aged couple who um, had a, an affair as teenagers on a kind of uh, main uh, summer cottage community uh, years before then married other people most unhappily, and now they have teenage children, and uh, their teenage children, this unhappily, now unhappily married middle-aged couple who were once lovers, their teenage children become lovers during the course of another summer, many years after the first summer that was in mind. And so you have two generations. And during the course of the teenage children becoming involved in every way, and the movie was sort of uh, pressing the envelope in 1960. It's still really, it's really quite powerful, actually, the the film, if you kind of give yourself to it. And the uh, Richard Egan and Dorothy McGuire characters, the parents, become involved as adulterous lovers the same summer that their teenage children are becoming involved as first lovers in a summer place. And um, the drama, in other words, is passed on through the generations. Uh, and a, a teenage affair in the 1930s or something like that is now um, uh, reignited as an adulterous affair in the 1950s. It's based on a book. And then the children in the 1960s of the, of the, of the unhappily married partners are now coming together. And uh, it, it has a very uh, remarkable denouement. And the... Um, by the way, just for those who are Episcopal Church uh, spotters, uh, 
it's amazing when if you have the eyes to see how many sort of conventional movies bring in religion that critics and sort of people who are kind of the people who watch these things um, retrospectively miss because they don't have the eyes to see them. And did you know that the Episcopal Church plays a vital role in A Summer Place when Troy Donahue and Sandra Dee, the two young lovers, have no place to go. They have no place to meet. And so they meet in an Episcopal church. The word is very... Sandra Dee says, let's meet in an Episcopal church. Well, uh, there's a very strong sense there that the Episcopal church, notwithstanding its kind of genetic attachment to people who supposedly went to Maine summer communities and went to boarding schools, which this is a sort of James Gould Cousins milieu, Nevertheless, the Episcopal Church is a safe place for these very beleaguered, poor, discomfited, star-crossed, touching, innocent young people who become involved. So I just thought I'd mention that. I was recently seeing Soylent Green again, and did you realize that I always think about Edward G. Robinson, but the key scene of the entire movie, hang on just a second. What I was saying was that uh, Soylent Green with Charlton Heston, the key scene in the whole thing takes place in a Catholic church. And the key incident in the whole thing has to do with a Catholic priest receiving confession from someone who's up to no good. And when you see the evidence of religion, explicitly, specifically the Christian religion in uh, Soylent Green, and I can give you many other examples, the Omega Man, for crying out loud, but Let's just stop it right there and just note that in A Summer Place, I sound like Brian Helm, my good friend, note that the um, A Summer Place references very touchingly and very inclusively the Episcopal Church to which the young teenage lovers have full access. Now, back to the question of Kramer. What this movie is so interesting in its uh, nature is that it uh, shows that um, the Kramer that is passed down, uh, let's call that simply the legacy of uh, of human malfeasance and uh, self-absorption and, uh, and really um, uh, activities that can only result in defeat for the next generation. This marriage of Richard Egan's to Constance Ford and Dorothy McGuire's to Arthur Kennedy, conceived in a false understanding of themselves, resulted in two children that do exactly the same thing. And yet, Richard Egan, mainly the father of the, uh, of the, uh, I think it's the father of the, uh, yes, he's the father of the Sandra D character. He sort of intervenes graciously and lovingly on behalf of his daughter, and there's a good ending. And what would have been two young people who would were also torn apart like their parents and married um, 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 it, 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 totally wrong partners, in this case, the children, children come together and have a happy ending. Now, that means that the Kramer, or legacy, or the sins of the fathers visited upon the children to the third and the fourth and the fifth generations, as the Bible puts it, has been slightly reduced by Richard Egan's wonderful intervention, which leads one to talk about for a second the nature of the way you make a difference or improve your life. I see again and again and again and again and again, and I see it in my own life, the way that um, parental and grandfatherly and family um, patterns are passed on uh, powerfully to the children. They are passed on um, first and foremost genetically, you see this, for example, in, in, in alcoholism or in addiction. Very often the person who is an addict, say to alcohol, uh, it turns out their father or mother was. And if you go back, it turns out their grandfather was. And it turns out if you look, no, if you know anything, and no one does, that their great-grandfather was. 
and the passing down of the seed of the problem, it's almost genetic. It has the feel of, of, of destiny about it that is almost, uh, it is actually, it's kind of a gene, you might say. And then it's passed down psychodynamically through certain patterns that are constantly reinforced. And this uh, passing down is uh, psychological, it's uh, genetic, and it's almost uh, unstoppable. And you see it um, working itself out in terms of child abuse or in terms of uh, all sorts of marital problems. You, you literally see in front of your eyes the exact same thing going on in a person's life that went on in their parents' life and in their grandparents' life. And sometimes going back, as the scripture says, so many generations. And you just long to have it stopped. And every so often, someone in the passage of this of what I'm calling Kramer, uh, it f finds that, they're, um, uh, that, that, that someone makes a stand in favor of, of a different way, as in the movie A Summer Place, and something alters and changes. And you might say, you could say that the purpose of human existence, and I actually will say it, is to draw down the Kramer with the help of the contraption. Now, anyone who's listened to these recent podcasts will know that the contraption is the word that I uh, immediately gave to the uh, personal vision I had of God on the 2nd of April 2013 on the campus of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I saw in the sky a kind of galleon uh, that had uh, saved uh, me from a certain kind of uh, way of living, a certain being, a certain repetition compulsion, uh, back in 1970 in the spring, and I was standing right there in the presence of that which uh, embodied the uh, change, and I saw in the sky the contraption, and it was saying to me, as clear as I'm talking to you with its microphone, that uh, I am the contraption, and the contraption has moved all things, has moved this creaking, remarkable checkerboard chess piece deal to the exact moment where you are so you could see what I have done for you. And so the contraption drew down my own particular Kramer, which was had been acted out in a whole lot of other ways. I mean, I could give you chapter and verse, but I'll let you ask yourself the question. Where's the Kramer that you see? Did, did you really know your father very well? Did you know his psychosexual history? You probably didn't. Do you know your mother's psychosexual history, the actual way she related to people, to men, to women, whatever it is? You, do, do you actually know the details of you, the youth and the adolescence of your parents and grandparents? If you did, you would probably see something like a daguerreotype. I use that word. It wouldn't be a photograph, but it would be like a... A, a, a sepia daguerreotype of your own present life because there is such a resonance to these things that, again, this is on very solid biblical ground. And what I saw uh, recently, because I was in the hospital in a situation where uh, there was a considerable amount of stress, and as someone I knew was about to go into surgery, major surgery and uh, general anesthetic, it just became so clear to me that uh, in that moment of what feels very much like a kind of extremist point, you know, you have the very strong sense, although it doesn't happen, but it has happened, and it feels remarkably like a punctuation that this person may never wake up. And I've been with enough people to know that very strange things happen under anesthetic. I can give you many examples of this. Uh, and uh, in this case... 
uh, I had the feeling, you know, what is it? What is it? What is life? What is this person's life? What does my life mean? Well, uh, as such, from the standpoint of the observation and the things that we've done, she's done, I've done, he's done, or her, you know, whoever it is, it almost at that point, at the point of general anesthesia, it all kind of comes down to a whiteout of nothing. Of, of kind of a blur of nothing in favor of some kind of ultimate being. Now, this sounds so much like a cliche, but if you've been in a medical emergency, and I bet you you have, or you've been with people in a medical emergency, you see it very clearly. Um, I love to quote, and I quote him very um, pointedly in my new book, entitled An Off-the-Wall Guide to World Religion, PZ's Panopticon. I quote this in my new book, but on uh, William Inge's uh, page 220 in his last novel, My Son is a Splendid Driver, he writes this. Death, he's referring to the death of his mother, death makes us all innocent and weaves all our private hurts and griefs and wrongs into the fabric of time and makes them part of eternity. Now, you're going to say, well, you know, what does that do with the rights and wrongs of life and uh, weighed in the balance and aren't found wanting and accountability? And I'm going to say, well, actually, from the standpoint of eternity, it puts them into this kind of fabric of innocence. There's a kind of awesome innocence that is there when we prepare to disconnect from the body and go uh, to uh, God. That is has the sort of sense of a blizzard of innocence. And uh, you can tell me a re million reasons why that's not true conceptually, but uh, experientially it has a real feeling of that, especially at moments of extremis. Now, that's not to say we're not going to that which is eternal, of which we are a part, which we're connected, and I've talked about that. I talk about it in my book in relation to another experience that I had in May. Uh, but... Um, I want to conclude, really, uh, in this short podcast by talking again about the Kramer, because what then, if death weaves it all into a kind of blizzard of innocence, uh, where are we then as far as the, uh, the life task? What is it that we're to do? And I used a summer place pointedly for all its kind of um, sentimentality and kind of, uh, you know, um, well, you know, people put these movies into categories. They'll talk about the 50s, or they'll talk about the Eisenhower years. Don't do that. Look at it as a story, as it could be told today in a slightly different way, about people and the passage and the transmission of patterns and, and these repetitive patterns that people have of inherited anger and inherited anxiety and inherited fears. And you pass that along, and people wake up to these things in life, and they say, how can I deal with this thing? I don't know where it came from. I could tell you, but that doesn't almost make any difference. But how do I deal with this compulsion that I have to do this or to think that or to feel that? How can I deal with it? What is it all about? And I want to say to you that the purpose of, the, of life is to draw down or reduce the Kramer, which is the, um, to use biblical language, the sins of the fathers visited upon the children to the multi-generational um, reality, to draw it down by means of some kind of contraption-enabled courage that enables you to say no and to it's almost not a conscious thing. This is where grace and law works. It's, that is to say, it's a spontaneous thing. Somewhere along the line, a love has come into your life by virtue of the contraption, and the love itself is usually a personal love, a person. And that love, which has been given to you by the contraption, allows you, with this sort of floor, this ground floor of confidence that you get from being loved, which turns 
uh, all the kind of negative emotions and feelings and uh, experiences and finally actings out into something like a negation of some of those things, at least a few of them, and a, and a, and a, and a yes, uh, as opposed to this colossal no, and, uh, and, and repetition. And uh, you see this, believe it or not, in this uh, quite amazing story, A Summer Place, which is really quite primal because it's really, uh, it's not edible, but it's intergenerational. And it's, uh, I have a natural, I just have a natural feel for the milieu. I, I don't at all, I identify with the milieu, uh, not completely, but enough to uh, be comfortable with the way they sort of think of the Episcopal Church. It, it, I, I feel comfortable with that. It doesn't mean it's good or bad, but, um, and millions did, by the way. The, it wasn't just the song that was popular. The book was popular and the movie was popular. And the song is matchless. Now, um, so if that's the purpose of living, then um, the but, – but you're not on your own. So I said to begin with that the – as Inge said, when you look back upon your life from the point of view of the person who's dying or just about to go into major surgery, you realize that the whole thing is kind of a blur. <clears throat> and um, it will be uh, – you, you really are going to detach from that. And it's all going to – there's kind of a cosmic innocence here, an original innocence that is yours. Now – you're held back from uh, kind of the the the, the loving um, oneness of being because you still have all these. It's not the weight of facts. It's the or the weight of things you've done. It's the weight of it's the weight of this the Kramer, which is this psychogenetic uh, passage and transmission, and that is actually uh, reduced by acts of courage enabled by the grace of God nay, the contraption, or the other way around. Uh, and then you find that things are not, th there's been a change. There actually is a change. Someone once said to me, Paul, you have an opportunity, long, long ago, you have an opportunity here to reverse the generations. You have an opportunity to make a real change that will be played out inevitably in whatever comes after you or that you've been part of. And specifically, let's say, one's children, one's grandchildren, because that's where it's usually played out. There, there can either be a, 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 better, a, a, a better thing or there can be basically a worse thing because things never remain the same in terms of Kramer. They always go downhill unless it's an arrested thing. Now, I've heard people for years uh, diss the song in uh, The Sound of Music, uh, which Julie Andrews and uh, Christopher Plummer sing uh, in a kind of beautiful moonlit night. Uh, it's sort of the equivalent of uh, I'm 16 going on 17, but I am 38 going on 49. A wonderful song, Love in the 40s, uh, and uh, in which the two um, older adults sing a beautiful song. And um, the song is called I Must Have Done Something Good, and it has to do with um, – let me see if I can fetch that up. Hang on. Uh, yes, it's actually worth quoting. Uh, this is uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, isn't it? Perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are, standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Now, this uh, particular lyric is often dissed by uh, Christian theologians, such as myself, because it appears to put the, uh, does put the onus of moral change and hope on, uh, on you. <laughs> you did something good, which contributed in the past you did, to this positive, new, uh, efflorescent development in my life now. So it puts the burden not on God's grace, but on something you did. Now, the, let me say something about that. Conceptually, that criticism of the song is absolutely correct. In other words, conceptually in Christianity, speaking as a Christian here, <clears throat> the 
moment that you put um, emphasis on what you do, you're putting it on a very um, on a very uh, questionable foundation. Uh, you being you are, are who are you? You know, you change all the time. Your motives are unclear to yourself. You're constantly uh, uh, self-destructive and uh, not only mas- sadistic but masochistic. And so, if you put the onus for uh, uh, hope in your life on your own person, you're putting it on something that cannot bear the weight of that because you being human human are flawed. And this is why the old illustration was, you know, if you have faith uh, in your, you can have, uh, uh, you can have a lot of faith, but if you, but if you're walking across the icy river and the ice is thin, the ice will not support you. But you can have very little faith in thick ice, so goes the illustration, and you'll be supported because the ice is thick. And that's what the Christian theology says. Don't put your faith in yourself. Put your faith in the ice. Now, I, that is to say the foundation, which is uh, something larger than yourself and outside of yourself, extrinsic, and I believe that. That is to say, conceptually speaking, that is absolutely correct. But that is sadly conceptual. How does it work out in real terms? How does it work out with you and me in real terms? It works out by some kind of act of heroism. Uh, It works out in this case by Julie Andrews sort of finally coming to herself and recognizing and allowing herself to feel something that might normally be considered verboten, that is, love for her boss and vice versa. This aristocratic Viennese or, you know, uh, Austrian um, uh, Landesherr, what another word is, a nobleman, and this uh, this former nun, ex-nun uh, tutor uh, of his children, uh, they allow themselves to feel this because somewhere along the line, in a real sense, they kind of earned it. Now, that that is not actually what is going on from a theological point of view, but I'm willing to admit it. It has to admit it. That's the way it feels. And you see this in a summer place when Richard Egan makes a couple of speeches that people at the time thought were very didactic, speeches in favor of mercy, love, compassion, and realism, and just sheer old-fashioned uh, understanding in relationship to uh, his uh, his uh, daughter uh, and uh, uh, the man she is in love with as a teenager, that is powerful because he's taking a stand. He's doing something that will affect ultimately his daughter's future who ends up not having to do the very thing that he was compelled to do by the psychogenetic pattern. Well, um, I happen to love the song. Uh, Somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. Notice it's not a moment of good. It's a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere I must have done something good. There's a kind of resonance to that song when you hear it. And I'll play it at the end with Julie Andrews singing and uh, Christopher Plummer. That's very, there's a kind of reality to it. And that's why I wanted to say it. it, it is from uh, my own vision uh, on the 2nd of April, 2013, the... The courage that one showed or the, you know, you say to somebody, you know, that was out of character. He did something that was out of character. What's the word we always used to use? There's a word we all use now. Um, uh, um, when, when you do something that is uh, discontinuous with what you've always done before, that's very powerful. And that makes a difference. These, uh, it, it, when she says nothing comes from nothing, she means in the song that if you do something that is courageous and affirmative, inevitably there is what the English call a knock-on effect. There's consequences to that which are positive. Things do in fact have consequences and work out. And in terms of Kramer, the consequences are very positive and necessary. And if you don't do something like that, then Kramer continues on its slow arithmetic progression downward. It's de-arithmetized 
algorithm downwards. And finally, it just gets worse and worse until you have a family ending in complete alcoholic despair or in prison sentences. You know, you find this with people in prison, that their father was in prison or their mother was in prison or their grandmother was in prison and their great-grandmother got hanged, you know, for something, you know, in 1820 in Yorkshire or something. So you find this out again and again and again. And that's why we want to say that the Kramer needs to be reduced, but by virtue of the contraption. And the contraption is love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace. That's what I want to say. And I hope you've enjoyed it. And this, you might say, is My Sharona 2, entitled Kramer. And now you'll hear that actually, oddly enough, it depends on what context you're coming from, dear reader, that rather uh, controversial, a bit very touching song that to me at this point in my life resonates in terms of the contraption. I must have done something good. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there. Must have done. 